This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Hannah Streger, who is the author of The Killer World Journals, Our Love and Fear of Orcas. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about your book. Um, Before we dive into it, will you please tell us about yourself? Well, I'm a marine biologist from Denmark, and um, I have studied killer whales or orcas in Norway for a couple of decades, um, and and those decades were interspaced by a period of time where I was head of exhibitions at the Natural History Museum of Denmark. So I have I have a, a career path that has taken me in in different directions. You tell us in the book um, what inspired you to go on this path. Um, it sounds like it started with. Um, a conversation in a cafeteria and you deciding to take a job as a cook on a boat. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's true. I know that for a lot of people, and especially a lot of the people I meet in the marine mammal world, many of them say that, oh, you know, this was the dream since I was a child and I wanted to do that. And I didn't really have a dream like that. I, uh, at the time when I was a student of biology, and that was a dream for me, but it was everything biology. I loved birds and flowers and trees, and it could have gone in many different directions. But then one day I was standing in a line, a very long line in the cafeteria, and there was this tall guy standing in front of me. And because he was so tall, I kind of knew who he was. Uh, he was, I think, a few years ahead of me in the studies, but we started chatting, and he revealed that he was going to Norway on a small rebuilt fishing boat uh, to do research on killer whales the week after. And I was, uh, I, I guess I was just really envious because I, I loved studying biology, but it was also 
it felt like we were spending all the time in the auditoriums and in the labs and reading books. And for my biology is something that goes on in the outside. So I was, I was longing to be outside and to be surrounded by wilderness. And I just couldn't help myself. But I, so I said to him, is there any way I could come? And, and he said, well, maybe they were, he thought they were still looking for somebody to cook on the vessel. So he gave me the number of the skipper, and I called the skipper. He was in Sweden the very same day. And before I knew it, I had talked myself into go on this boat to be the cook. And I didn't really have much experience in cooking at all. But um, I bought a cookbook, and I left uh, maybe five or six days later. So that was a coincidence that took me in that direction. And then a few things happened. Of course, it was fun to be in a boat with like-minded people who were totally interested in nature and whales. And I mean, just the talk over the dinner table was so interesting to me. Uh, and, and I was, I, I don't think at that time I was really considering that I could, that it could become a career. But it, it just gradually happened. And I had one particular experience where um, actually the same tall guy, he, his name was Morton, came back one day. They had been out in the small Zodiacs. I was still on the boat. He came back and said, well, there are killer whales out there. Don't you want to see? And I didn't get to go out as often as the others because they were because I was cooking. So I hurried to get in some warm clothes and jumped into this little Zodiac and we just zoomed out of the harbor and we got to the area where they had seen the whales earlier and there was nothing. It was just gray and dark and uh, raining a little bit and not very exciting. But of course we were looking. I mean, they'd just been there, so where were they? And we couldn't find them. And Morden took out a hydrophone and hooked it up with some headphones. And he gave me the headphones and he threw the hydrophone in the water. And I was completely unprepared to, to listen to the sounds of the whales. I, have, I, ha, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect them to be heard so readily. We couldn't see them, but we could hear them extremely well. And you hear these whistling sounds, very melodious. Um, you could tell that some of them were far away, some of them that were closer. And I realized that they were in touch with each other, even down there in the darkness, where, where we couldn't see them. And they were probably quite far away because we didn't see them at the surface at all. They were communicating with each other. They were staying in touch. And that just threw me that an animal, which is so foreign to us, with a life that is so different in the darkness, in the water, um, in the cold depth of the ocean, that there was something which was so readily understandable as communication and staying in touch. And that triggered something in me, and, and that changed my life, I guess you can say, because that's more or less when I decided that that's the way I wanted to go. I wanted to 
study these sounds and and learn more about them. When the book opens, you're still a student, you're still enrolled, and you're supposed to be in lab. You have a unusual advantage for how you managed to be in two places at once. Can you tell about how your sister helped you out? Yes. I, I It was okay, actually, to leave from university. I think nowadays, at least in Denmark, you can't do that. You can't just depart in the middle of semester. But at that time, you could at least if you came back to take the final exams at the end of the semester, and I still plan to do that. But I had a problem that we had some lab courses, and they were mandatory, and, and our names were, you know, ticked off every time. Uh, so I, I had to attend the lab classes. And, uh, of course, if I was in Norway cooking in a small vessel, I could attend the lab classes. But my advantage was that I have an identical twin sister. And I, I asked her if she would go up and, and do the lab classes for me. And, of course, I had to uh, talk to my fellow students and, you know, uh, make them agree to help her out so that it didn't become too obvious. So she actually attended the lab classes for me, and uh, I did the exams later. And that was, uh, I think that's the only time we've ever used that thing that we are identical, um, but it came in very handy. Um, she's, she's led, her life was very different from mine. She, she went completely opposite. She went to, the, um, to, to uh, Latin America to work uh, with people and, uh, in the Peace Corps, and I went to Norway in the Arctic. So in that sense, our, our worlds were quite different. But at that time, she hadn't left yet. At the time that the book opens... It's, it's different than it is now. It's, it's hard to imagine now um, that everybody isn't in favor of saving the whales. But at the time that you are out in this boat and you're cooking, you're still encountering people who are pro-whaling. And your professors believe that science was really done in the lab, that field work such as you wanted to do was not as rigorous of a study. Can you talk about these sort of obstacles that got in the way or could have gotten in the way of the study that you needed to do? Yeah, the, actually what you're talking about, the, the attitude that we met when we came to Norway is what made me write the book because I often meet people um, now when I talk about what I do and and everybody of course loves killer whales or orcas and think they're just amazing and so do I. I I completely agree but I I also understand that a lot of people don't know that it wasn't always like that and there's still in some places of the world a threat to killer whales um, and to whales in general. And that's what made me write the book because there's some really interesting stories to be learned from this thing. I was really unprepared when I came to Norway and found out that this complete uh, love of the, the wild and animals and especially the killer whales was not something that the people on the boat shared with a lot of the people in the small community where we in the harbor where we were, and that had to do with fishing. Uh, the killer whales in Norway uh, used to be regarded as something that 
took the fish away from the fishermen. Uh, and we have to roll back time a little bit to understand why, because the Norwegian herring fishery, and herring is what the Norwegian killer whales um, eat, was huge and was a really, really fundamental part of the economy in Norway and especially in northern Norway. And the herring fishery collapsed in the 60s and very early 70s. And this collapse led people to think that because it was unheard of, it has never happened before that a fishery collapsed like this. People thought it was because the killer whales were eating all the herring. And it's true that there's often a lot of killer whales around fishing boats. So I'm sure that fishing boats at that time also saw the killer whales and they just deduced that mm, there's no herring, the killer whale must have eaten them all. And in fact, there was a um, almost like a culling program uh, from the 1930s, which didn't stop until 1982. In the last 10 years, when it was still allowed to shoot and kill killer whales, uh, more than a thousand were killed. And that was when we started working there, it was after killer whales had become a protected species, but a lot of people still felt that they shouldn't be there. And the herring fishery had not really recovered yet, which was also part of the story. So it's very often, you know, a conflict over resources simply. Um, and, and I think it's important to understand that if you want to try to solve problems with people's attitudes with different predators. Um, so that was a big problem. Another thing was, yeah, the attitude to research. Uh, and in Norway, there was not a strong tradition for research in Wales at all. In fact, the only research at that time was research on minke whales. And there was research on minke whales because that was the whale that was still hunted in were the whalers. So it was a commercially interesting species. And therefore, they had some research programs on, on it, but not a lot. Uh, and for people to study killer whales was like, why would you want to do that? It's not an interesting species at all. Uh, and they only saw it from the viewpoint of whether it matters economically or not. Um, so... It took a long time, it took decades actually, before attitudes started to change. Um, and the way to do that has been to talk about what we are doing. And I, it wasn't only me, they were uh, gradually, other people became involved too. There was um, a young Finnish student who uh, started her doctoral program on Norwegian killer whales. There was a Mexican student, there was me, there was uh, two or three others, but very, very few Norwegians, simply because it wasn't considered a, like a legitimate study. And, and also the thing you said about studying wild animals is something that I've often thought about. I, I went very early to a um, workshop which was held in... Canada and the U.S. about how to study killer whales. It was in the, I think, the winter of 1990. And the people who organized it had invited some people who studied other species, but were doing it out there in, in the wild and were using methods which, I mean, it could take 
forever to get data because it was long-term studies where they followed uh, individuals and groups for a really long time. You can't study social structure and and understand the dynamics uh, between individuals unless you know uh, the individuals in a population apart. And of course, that takes time. And so some of the people that they had invited to to look into this and talk about this was uh, a guy called Chris Packer, who studied lions in um, Tanzania. And he also talked about the values of you know, long-term studies, uh, just follow the individual, see what they do. And uh, they'd invited um, Bernd Heinrich, which is also, by the way, a really great uh, writer of books about nature. And he had studied ravens. And he, too, had, he had, he had this interesting dilemma of how come that sometimes when there's a a carcass of um, a, a deer or an elk lying out in the woods. And sometimes there are just two ravens and they're really quiet as if they're guarding their food resource. And other times there's a whole crowd and then they're very rowdy. And he had, in order to solve the question, he had to get to know them individual, individually to understand what was going on. And for me, that was an eye-opening experience to hear these really um, experienced researchers talk about their methods and their values of observation, long-term studies. Another one who who didn't attend this uh, workshop, of course, is the famous uh, Jane Goodall, who also used these methods to understand what was really going on around in the chimp society. So I think... Uh, these methods are really valuable for whale researchers in order to understand family structure, social dynamics. And it goes without saying that it's it's a little bit more difficult to do it when this animal you are looking at disappears under the surface 80% of the time and you only get you only get glimpses of their life when they are at the surface. And that's a continuous challenge. But something that has been a little bit overcome, I think, by using a method called ID photography, which is basically that if you get a good enough picture of an animal, whether it's a lion or a humpback whale or a killer whale, you can actually tell them apart and and see who is swimming with whom, who is, um, who is uh, challenging another one in the group, uh, who gets a newborn. I mean, you, you get a lot of information if you're patient and and you are there a lot of the time. We found out, of course, that doing this in Norway was even more challenging because it's um, the, the killer whales come into the shore when the herring is there and the herring come in in the wintertime. So, and they come in in northern Norway. So it's north of the Arctic Circle. It's uh, going on in November, December, January mainly, and uh, so the hour, the daylight is very limited. There's, I mean, a lot of the time the sun doesn't even come above the horizon, but there, there's the light that we can see. But it's um, it's challenging, and I don't want this to sound as if I think it's a pity that it's like this. I actually think it's fantastic because it's one of the most beautiful places in the world to be with a low light and 
the mountains and the snow and the killer whales. So I, I, I think that it's an amazing place and an amazing chance to get a glimpse into the lives of these really interesting animals, but it's also challenging. You've also studied the whales in other parts of the world and been to talk to people who have experiences with them. One of the places that you went was Twofold Bay. Can you tell us the story of the Davidson family and their interaction with the whales there? Yes, that's probably my favorite story. When I started to collect these stories and, and uh, in places where I came and talked to people about their relationship to killer whales, uh, the, the stories about the killer whales in Twofold Bay is uh, just uh, completely astonishing. Um, it started more than 100 years ago. It started in the 1840s when a European whaler came to Twofold Bay, which is some hours south of Sydney. And uh, there was already some whaling going on there, and he became station manager. And he learned very quickly that um, some boats, some whaling boats, had developed a relationship with the killer whales where they had a collaboration with the killer whales, that the killer whales helped the whalers catch the big whales that the whalers were after. They were after humpback whales and white whales primarily. And at that time, whaling was not for meat. It was only for blubber, which was then cooked and melted to, uh, to, uh, so that you could get the oil. And the rest was actually dumped. Uh, so therefore, the whalers didn't mind that the killer whales were biting part of the whale and the part that the killer whales really wanted was the tongue and the lips. So when the whale was dead uh, and the whalers had killed it, they left it to the killer whales to feast on and that usually took a few days and they had a buoy on it so that when it surfaced, usually it sank after it was killed and the killer whales were eating on it below uh, the surface. And when it resurfaced because gases were produced inside it, uh, the whalers rowed out in the rowing boats and pulled it back into shore where they cut off the blubber and melted the oil. And this collaboration became more and more refined uh, so that uh, it, it actually ended up with killer whales scouting for big whales, swimming back to the um, whaling station, alerting the whalers to, to the knowledge that now there are big whales out there by slapping their tails very loudly at the surface, waking up the whalers if they were sleeping, so that they could go in the boat. They followed the killer whales out to the um, whaling fields and helped the whalers kill the, 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 big, the large whales by biting their flippers and their tails and throwing themselves on top of the blowhole with techniques that killer whales also use when they are hunting for big whales, which some specialized groups of killer whales do. And uh, the really amazing thing is that this collaboration went on for more than 100 years uh, through three generations of whalers and as many generations of killer whales. And it's probably 
how did it all get started, you could say? And it's probably started by Aboriginal uh, people in the area who had a special relationship with killer whales because there are some old stories from before white whalers came and started uh, whaling for big whales of Aboriginals uh, communicating with killer whales and also dolphins. Um, So it's very likely that this is some kind of knowledge or wisdom that local people, Aboriginals in the area had and that the white whalers, uh, through collaborating with the Aboriginals, learned how to take advantage of it. Uh, it's extremely well documented. It's not just a fable. There are lots of photographs of it because it it ended only in 1930. Uh, And uh, the whalers actually uh, knew the killer whales apart, just like I was telling you about that we can distinguish each individual whale from each other by looking carefully at photographs of them. These whalers had name for the different whales and they could tell them apart. Uh, so it's a truly fascinating story of a really well-developed collaboration between man and a wild animal. And of course, the, both parts had a benefit from it, but, but it wasn't, you wouldn't say that the killer whales were trained or tamed. It was something that they did because they saw an advantage they could gain from it. And I think that's really, really uh, flabbergasting, if you ask me, uh, that it happened. And it has happened also with some dolphins uh, in Brazil who are doing the same just with fish and fishermen. Uh, but other than that, there are not many examples actually uh, of wild animals choosing to ha- establish a long-term partnership with people uh, so it's a really, really cool and interesting story. And I spoke to the granddaughter of the one of the whalers. His name was George Davidson, and she was the granddaughter of him. And she told me that her grandfather uh, was he saw the killer whales like he saw like other people, like farmers saw sheepdogs. It was something that helped him and. He had a really strong relationship with them. He could tell them apart, and they were his helpers. They could also be obnoxious every now and then. There was especially one whale, which was called Old Tom, which could sometimes, when perhaps when it was bored, perhaps it was just an, an animal that had that kind of spirit. Perhaps Sometimes it would take the line from one of the boats and s- swim with it in its mouth, dragging the people in the rowing boat full speed. And there was nothing they could do before it slowed down. But there are also examples. And of course, these are unconfirmed. But I actually don't see any reason why it couldn't be true of killer whales helping a whaler get back in the boat if he had accidentally fallen overboard. Uh, So it was a mutual and uh, relationship where both parts gained from it. What I find Many people often say that it, it's astonishing that the whalers trusted the whales, that they allowed them to come this close, and that they even trusted them if they fell in the water. They knew that the killer whales wouldn't harm them. But I actually think that it's equally astonishing that the killer whales trusted the people because they saw people kill other whales. 
So they knew what they could do. And still, they knew that that's not what they do with us. So it's a, it's a really fascinating story. And it's one of the stories that I have in my book because it, it tells that if you are if you allow it to happen, you can develop relationships with animals that are maybe sometimes to mutual benefit. But also, it's a good story of killer whales. They have not always been hated, as which was what I have seen in other places of the world, that uh, they have this, they, actually the stories about them are as black as white as they are themselves, that they tend to either ignite fear or love uh, and that's that's what fascinates me about them in your own studies you talk about learning about how the whale pods work together and the family structure that they have and also that there are different dialects um, that whales in different parts of the world speak can you tell us about what you learned about the whales themselves yes as I told you before, the, the thing that really hit me was listening to their sounds underwater because it was so different from what I expected and so beautiful and strong. And so I knew very early that I wanted to look more into that. And at that time, a, a Canadian researcher called John Ford had done a study of the killer whales in Canada. And uh, he had found out that these different groups that were really well known in that area, they knew them all. Uh, they even knew all the individuals in each group. Uh, he found out that they had dialects. And, and dialects is an interesting phenomenon because we, we all know what dialects are. Uh, but these dialects uh, were not due geographical like the ones that we usually think about when we talk about dialects that people in one side of the country speak differently than people in another side of the country but these whales were actually swimming in the same waters and they were sometimes swimming next to each other so it wasn't dialects that was maintained by a geographical distance they're actually more like a uh, uh, cultural dialect uh, because they were maintained by your social identity who where you belong to so each different group had their own repertoire of calls uh, and they maybe they shared some calls with other groups uh, but they always had like their own repertoire set of calls which was typical for that group and so I started looking into this in Norway and it was yeah, I, well, I can go to the conclusion first. And yes, they also have dialects in Norway. It's the same picture we see. But we didn't get to understand them quite as well as in Canada and the U.S. because there are so many more whales. And because of the conditions for studying them, it's more difficult uh, in, in, the, in the winter. We never got all individuals in all the groups identified it was estimated at that time uh, that there might have been more than 1,500 kilo whales in northern Norway, and we never got to know all of them, whereas in the uh, Canadian uh, and U.S. groups, there's about 400 in total. So it's very 
the scale is different. And uh, I, I, so I didn't get recordings of all the groups, uh, and we didn't know all the groups either. But those groups that I did get, there was a, a very big difference from group to group. There were, just like in Canada, some calls which were shared between different groups, but there was also always uh, group-specific repertoires of calls. And there were a few groups which were, whose repertoire was very, very different from the rest. So they probably had it uh, like, maybe they didn't come so often into that area. Maybe they belonged in a different place. We don't know, but you, we could hypothesize that there was a, a reason for this difference. Yes, they have these group-specific dialects, and they are like identity markers from, for their group. And it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's something they learn and that they uh, cultivate in their societies. And I think this is something that we have learned about actually several species of whales now, that they have these cultures, different ways of doing things, which is learned and transmitted, not through genes, but socially from individual to individual in the groups. And it's not just sounds. It's also the way that they live. It's, uh, it's now called ecotype, so that we have herring specialist eaters in Norway. There are also one or a few more groups that are, have specialized in eating seals. And we know from the other places in the world that we have groups that are specialized in eating marine mammals, seals, sea lions, even larger males. These are also behaviors that are culturally transmitted. Very cool thing about these highly intelligent animals that they have these cultures and that they are... Um, maintaining them through social learning. Uh, and I think that's something to keep in mind when you're talking conservation, because it means that you can't just ignore that. You can't just say that, well, there's lots of killer whales, but some of them probably are have really small communities with very specialized behavior that you don't see in other places. For instance, in Spain and Portugal, there's a very small uh, population of killer whales, which is there's below 50 animals. Uh, and they are critically endangered for a number of different reasons. Uh, they are specialized on eating tuna. So if they disappear, if this group disappears, well, it doesn't mean that killer whales become extinct because they're killer whales in other places, but this specific behavior may, be, may become extinct. And I think that's important to think about, that it's not just the species, it's also all the things that they do uh, that we should be aware of when we talk about c conserving this or that species or this and that culture. One of the concerns that you raise in the book is what it means for them uh, emotionally when there's a loss of an entire pod or a significant number of members in it. You do reference Jane Goodall and you talk about that 
the question of animals having emotions, including grief, is one that scientists have, and they've documented grief-specific behaviors as well, and that we don't know then what the ongoing effect of grief and loss is on the animals and their behaviors in the future. Well, as a biologist, I think it's actually surprising that it's a, a discussion whether animals have emotions or not, because I think that emotions is something that we have that helps us in our social lives. If we didn't love our children, we wouldn't protect them. And of course, the 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 cost of having strong, strong emotions, feeling love, is that you also feel the loss if you lose whatever you're loving. And I don't, I really don't see why this should be any different for animals. So for me, it's not surprising that we are more and more realizing that uh, many species of animals, not just whales, but um, I mean, lots of mammals for sure, can feel emotions that we also know, because it makes biological sense. And, And with killer whales, it became very obvious to me when you see how strongly connected they are to each other in a group, that it's not a random group of animals that are swimming together, it's a family group, and they stay together. And if you take an animal out of that group, either by shooting them or by catching them and sending them to a marine park somewhere, it has, of course, a devastating effect on that animal because it loses its whole family but it also have an effect on those who are left behind because they lost a dear family member. And to me, that's not romanticizing uh, anything about animals. It, it makes total sense in a, in, a, in a biological way to have emotions because that's how we protect our, uh, our offspring and other animals that we are related to. And, and that does worry me when I uh, listen to people who think that it's okay, for example, to to catch animals, to catch dolphins, to catch killer whales, and um, and have them sent to some marine park somewhere. Uh, I think it's something we should be very skeptical of and and uh, really try to find out if there isn't other ways that we can learn about these animals than by putting them in a chlorinated pool somewhere and having them perform tricks. Towards the end of the book, you talk to us about threats against the killer whales today. And you said, ironically, it it's probably not where they are hunted like in Greenland or captured like they were in Russia. It is in the Pacific Northwest where they are loved and treasured. Can you talk to us about the threats that are there and about Springer? (laughs) Yes, Springer. Springer is a wonderful story. Uh, (laughs) Springer is a story of a small killer whale that was found in the harbor uh, in Seattle uh, 20 years ago swimming around alone and being much too small to be on her own. Uh, A a small 
child, really, like a, a baby killer whale, should be with its group. And nobody really knew where it belonged to. And um, eventually it was found out that it's it came from a group um, in northern uh, Vancouver Island uh, called the Aport. And the reason uh, or the way it was found out was actually through dialect studies. Uh, and they were able to match the calls that they recorded from this animal with the calls that they had from the Aport. And they found out uh, that there was a, um, a female killer whale that had a calf and that was Springer. And they even had pictures of Springer, but the female had not been seen for uh, a year at that time. So they they uh, reasoned that Springer's mother was probably dead. In fact, she's never been seen again. And uh, Springer somehow got disconnected to her family group. And that set a lot of uh, motion uh, going. Uh, some people wanted it to be transmitted back to its original group. Uh, others thought maybe it would be better to have it in a marine park, marine land somewhere. To make a long story co- uh, short, a lot of people were so engaged in this story that uh, eventually uh, it was uh, caught and put in a sea pen where it was fed uh, with live salmon. And it was uh, given some medicine because it had actually had some medical problems as well. And after, I think, very short time, just a month or so, it was, uh, it was uh, evaluated and the veterinarians and researchers found that it was now strong enough that it could be transported back to northern Vancouver. And so they put it on a ferry in a big case and uh, when they got there they had a sea pen ready for it there as well and they didn't really know how long time it would take before there would be an opportunity before they saw some wild killer whales and they could release it but actually already the very very first evening a group of killer whales came by and they were the apod they were her relatives and this little killer whale was frantically trying to get out of her sea pens. She was bouncing into the net around it, and the researchers were not really sure if they should do it now or, or what. And then they calmed down, things calmed down, and the killer whales went away. But they came back the day after, and at that time they released her, and she swam right out to them. And it took a while before she had found out to have a stable relationship with them. But she eventually was rejoined her own group, uh, her old own group, and uh, has been seen many, many times since, and now also with two offspring of her own. So it's a really happy story, I think, of a successful uh, transmission of a uh, wild kilometer whale back to her natal group. Wonderful story. And it also tells us just how loved killer whales are in the Pacific Northwest. People are love them. And, I mean, you can see it on merchandise and T-shirts and baseball caps. And, it, it's, I mean, you can get orca beer. You can get everything. But it's it, the, the paradox is that even with all that love, it's not, it's not saving them because the, the, these populations, 
not ex- maybe is her part, Springer's part, but especially the, the parts of Kilowatts that live a li- little bit further south around Puget Sound, they're really threatened, and they're threatened by a couple of things. They're threatened by ship noise. It's one of the most trafficked areas in, in the world. There's so much heavy traffic, water pollution, uh, noise pollution. They have very, very high levels of uh, organic pollutants in their tissue, so high actually that it's considered that this might impair their breeding, it might impair their immune systems. So they are, they are among the most polluted animals in the world. And the last thing, and this may be the most immediate thing uh, which I think should be solved, is that the, the species that they rely on for food is salmon. And the salmon fishery is uh, huge in the area. It's probably taking food away from the killer whales. The, the, Fishery, as in many other places of the world, goes up and down. Uh, so it's it's ne- you can't say this is because of that. It's always many many different factors at the same time. But some of the factors that influence uh, the availability of salmon in the Pacific Northwest is the industrial fishing for salmon and the leisure fishery for salmon. And at a time where uh, the fishing uh, is going down, it would be, I think, it should be considered if it shouldn't be stopped altogether in order to save a species, which is so iconic for the area. Uh, And they are starving. We know they are starving. You can see individual after individual which have developed what is called a peanut head, which is a sign of starvation. It's simply that the, the blubber around the skull it gets less, and then you can see the form of the skull more, and, and it has a shape like a peanut. Um, and it's, it's frustrating uh, to watch that the numbers are declining, and um, because it's so difficult to say what factor is influencing the most, is it boat traffic, is it pollution, is it lack of fish? Nothing really happens. Uh, and I think it might be uh, a case where even if we love them, even if you think they're important, it may not be enough to save them because nobody seems to be able to agree on, on taking the measures which are necessary. Early in the book, when your first embarking on all of this work, you had a mission to build bridges with the people who were still pro-whaling. And two men invite you onto their boat and they have whale meat there in the galley that they proceed to cook and eat in front of you. That was where the book opens. Towards the end, you tell us that there has been a, a fairly quick shift in perception and attitude towards the killer whales in, in some areas then this is giving you hope, but you still have great concerns for habitat. I have huge concerns for a lot of different things. I have for habitat, I have for overfishing, I have for pollution. Uh, 
I have for boat traffic. Uh, and, and for instance, in Norway, where, as you say, yes, we have witnessed a really uh, good change in attitude. Uh, so, uh, so much so that a lot of fishermen are now, you know, ha- hanging over the railing, taking pictures of uh, killer whales, posting them on social media. And I think it's wonderful. And you can also see it in towns that there are now, you know, postcards and books about whales and, and there's a local pride. And I think this pride is, I mean, that's the first component that there needs to be is you need to be proud of the nature you have. And that shift I have certainly seen take place in Norway. But we still have a lot of fishery, of course. Uh, and the reason it's not a conflict right now is that the the herring bounce back. So at the moment, there's enough herring for both the fishermen and the killer whales. But the problem now is that the because there's a lot of fishing boats, it's also more often that we see entanglements, we see killer whales or humpback whales, which have become a lot more common the last 10 years, uh, get into the fishing gear, uh, get entangled in the nets, have ropes around their flippers or their tails. And, of course, we have no idea how many um, free themselves and or how many die from this. Uh, but I have seen quite a few, both humpback whales, uh, with a buoy around their flipper, or I've seen uh, pictures. I, I haven't seen them myself, but... There's been killer whales which were trapped in the purse saying that and drowned. So it, there are still lots of risk just because there's a lot of activity on the water. There's a lot of different interests. And uh, for the fishermen, uh, the killer whale is, and the humpback whales have now become a, I mean, something they don't see of as a competitor as much at least to their fishing but they see it as a pain, a pain, like something that wrecks their gear. And therefore now they want them away because it's costly to have them wreck a person net. Or, uh, so there's still a lot of problems. And I don't think there's not an easy way of solving this. It's, it, I think that the talks, the bridge building, the understanding, it's a continuous process. It's never something where... Now we've done it. Now everybody is happy. There's always new problems coming up. So it's something that we'll just have to keep on doing all the time. Keep talking. Keep having respect for fishermen. It's their livelihood. It's how they live. We also, I eat herring. Uh, it's, it's. Um, I think unless you respect each other, it will be really, really hard to reach an understanding but it's um, it's a process that I think never ends, and in that way, that that is of course a little bit frustrating. It would be nice if at some point you could lean back and say, "Well done, now they're saved." But that's not how the world is. It it will never end. We'll have to keep doing this, and there will be losses on the way. I think there will be populations of killer whales that will say, "Well, they aren't here anymore." Those that specialized in that kind of behavior. Like the killer whales in, in Twofold Bay in Australia, they're not anymore. They died out. They disappeared. Uh, and 
And that those losses, I think we haven't seen the last of them. But the more we talk, the more we uh, discuss this, the more we listen to each other, I think the better we, actually a possibility we have of making small steps of pro- progress. And I think that the really important progress to do right now is to the, 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 the killer whales in the Pacific Northwest, uh, especially those that are called the Southern residents, they need a helping hand. Uh, there's a problem there. Uh, it's not easy to solve, but it's, it's efforts should be, be done. The sooner the better. You're starting to run short of time before I let you go. I was hoping you would tell us about something you share with us towards the end of the book in the chapter Cut in Stone, where you take your father and your sister and your daughter and your nephews and you go to find some uh, old carvings. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was probably the chapter that I most love to write because it, uh, it's a chapter where I'm also talking about my father, and he, he's dead now. Uh, and, but that trip was something we did after my mother dead, died. Um, and we went, uh, I persuaded my whole family, my twin sister and her two sons and my, uh, my father and my own daughter to come to Northern Norway. And I wanted them to see what I loved. Um, and we had been out at sea, the whole day, and of course it's been grisly cold and awful weather, and we had seen killer whales, and we have seen the white-tailed eagles, and we actually had a really nice day. And we were we'd just come back, and we wanted to go home to the cottage that we rented. And then I had this idea that there was one more thing I really wanted to show them, and I'd only seen it once myself, and that's a, a, a prehistoric site with rock carvings, which was just nearby. And so they said, okay, we'll come. Uh, and uh, my father at that time was quite an old man and he didn't walk very well. And he, he, he used a stick or a cane. Uh, and, and it was an uphill walk and it wasn't easy walking, not even for the rest of us. And I was really nervous about him because he, he, he's, he's quite was quite skinny and not very strong and I was worried that if he fell what would happen um, but we I mean these the children took his hands and we went up there and and we came up we went first through this area where there were some low trees and bushes and then we got up in the more open where it was just the rock surfaces of the mountains and there was this sloping side uh, which is where the rock carvings are, and the rock carvings are magnificent. They are all—it's a whole herd of animals that are moving in the same direction. And I think the side is maybe the size of a, a tennis court or something like that. It's really big, and all animals are unnatural size. There are moose, there are reindeer, there are bears, there are um, two swans, and there's a killer whale. And the killer whale is six meters long. Uh, and when we got there, the light was just beautiful and it was quiet. And we just sat there and took in the centuries, uh, the millenniums. It was amazing. Uh, and to understand that people had lived there 4,000, 5,000 years ago, and they'd spent time making this art piece 
carving it in wood in in the rocks uh, and it made me think about um, I mean why did they do that and of course if you ask an archaeologist they would say well it has maybe a shamanistic purpose or maybe uh, it was uh, like a religious ritual or something they did before hunting or well, nobody really knows uh, and I don't know either but what I could see is that this it was done by people who connected with animals. I mean, they they were reaching in a way they were reaching out to these animals. They were they were making these carvings, I think, to connect to them in some way. Uh, and I think it's interesting that we as humans are so interested in animals, at least some of us are, and that this crossing this species border is so alluring to us. We we want to have a closer connection to the other animals on Earth. And I consider myself an animal too, that, that there's this desire to reach out and connect to something different than ourselves. Uh, I mean, we have dogs in our homes, we ride horses. I think it's a really strong thing in a lot of us that we want to connect to the living world through these animals. And I think these prehistoric people did the same. And, and I think my whole life certainly has been about connecting to animals, connecting to killer whales. And I feel a connection when I get out at sea and they come up next to the boat or they stick their head out and they look at us. They don't look at us because the same way as they look at a mountain. They look at us because they realize that we are living, that we are something different from themselves, but something that is there. And that connection, I think, that is cool. Hannes Dreger, thank you so much for being here today and telling us about your new book, the Killer Whale Journals are Love and Fear of Orcas. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network, and I hope you will please join us again.